All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, it is the moment you have been waiting for for a while for Confessional Corner. We are at the conclusion, the final 23 paragraphs of Article 5 on love and the fulfilling of the law. I am Pastor Doug Minton, gladly standing with you as I have guided you throughout the entire article to now bring you to its conclusion. And what are the main conclusions Melanchthon has for faith and love as taught in the Bible. We'll find that out this week. So we look at paragraphs 257 to 261. We are not arguing with the adversaries about a small matter. We are not trying to make a fine distinction when we find fault with them for teaching that we merit eternal life by works while faith takes hold of Christ as mediator is left out. For there is not a syllable in the scholastics about this faith that believes the Father is reconciled to us for Christ's sake. Everywhere they hold that we are accepted and righteous because of our works, completed either from reason or certainly worked by the inclination of that love that they speak about, yet they have certain sayings, proverbs, as it were, of the old writers. They distort these in interpretation. In the schools it is boasted that good works please because of grace and that confidence must be put in God's grace. Here they understand grace as a habit by which we love God. It is as though the ancients meant that we should trust in our love, even though from experience we know how small and how impure it is. It is strange how they ask us to trust in love, since they teach us that we are not able to know whether it is present. Why do they not present the grace, the mercy of God toward us? While they are at it, they should add faith. For the promise of God's mercy, reconciliation, and love toward us is not grasped unless by faith. With this view, they would rightly say that we should trust in grace, that good works please because of grace, when faith takes hold of grace. In the schools, it is bragged that our good works work by virtue of Christ's passion. Well said! But why add nothing about faith? For Christ is an atoning sacrifice, as Paul says, by faith, Romans 3.25. When fearful consciences are comforted by faith and are convinced that our sins have been blotted out by Christ's death and that God has been reconciled to us because of Christ's suffering, then indeed Christ's suffering profits us. If the teaching about faith is left out, saying that works are useful by virtue of Christ's passion is of no use at all. All right, so we look at this real quick, especially the line in paragraph 260. It is strange how they ask us to trust in love, since they teach us that we are not able to know whether it is present. Why do the Roman theologians demand that we trust in love that we must doubt if we even have in the first place? That is the whole problem with Rome, is that they demand doubt. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. They demand that you be in doubt as to whether you were saved or not. That is not what Jesus came to do. Jesus did not come to save people, but maybe not you, maybe somebody else. I mean, this is one side of the ditch. The other side is the reformed idea of double predestination, that God decided who was going to heaven and who was going to hell long before he even created the world. So you and I had no choice, no chance in the matter. No matter if we are the best of works and the most righteous of people, we might still be condemned to hell if we lost that eternal coin toss. And we might be the world's most dangerous, notorious terrorist and serial killer, but we won the coin toss way back when, so yep, we're guaranteed heaven no matter what. That's not what the Bible teaches. Neither one of those 
is a good thing. Why? Because the Bible teaches that we are to take hold of faith and trust in Christ, that there is no promise that he has broken. Every promise he has made, he has kept, including, although not yet, the promise of coming back to take us to be with him. Because after all, that is what consoles consciences on the deathbed, is that they are going to see Jesus, and they're going to be with him forever. There is no other consolation. They can bring in all the family and all the good works that they did, but at the heart of it all, it must be that they are looking forward to seeing Christ. They go on in paragraphs 262 to 268 to then talk about faith again. Because this has been really the entirety of Article 4 and Article 5 in the Apology. They corrupt very many other passages in the schools because they do not teach the righteousness of faith and because they understand faith as merely a knowledge of the history or of dogmas. They do not understand faith to be a virtue which takes hold of the promise of grace and of righteousness and which enlivens hearts in the terrors of sin and death. When Paul says, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, Romans 10.10, we think that the adversaries admit that confession justifies or saves, not by the outward act, but only because of the faith of the heart. Paul says that confession saves in order to show what sort of faith receives eternal life, namely that which is firm and active. That faith, however, does not present itself in confession is not firm. So other good works please because of faith, just as the prayers of the church ask that all things be accepted for Christ's sake. They likewise ask all things for Christ's sake. For it is clear that this clause is always added at the close of prayers through Christ our Lord. So we conclude that we are justified before God, are reconciled to God, and reborn through faith. In repentance, this faith lays hold of the promise of grace and truly enlivens the terrified mind. It is convinced that for Christ's sake, God is reconciled and favorable toward us. Through this faith, 1 Peter 1.5 says, we are being guarded for a salvation ready to be revealed. The knowledge of this faith is necessary to Christians, brings the most abundant comfort in all troubles, and shows us Christ's office. Those who deny that people are justified through faith and that Christ is mediator in the atoning sacrifice deny the promise of grace and the gospel. When it comes to justification, they teach only the doctrine either of reason or of the law. We have shown how this came to be, so far as can be done here. We have also explained the objections of the adversaries. Good people will easily judge these things if they will think in this way whenever a passage about love or works is quoted. It is certain that the law cannot be kept without Christ, and that we cannot be justified from the law, but from the gospel, that is, from the grace promised in Christ. We hope that this discussion, although brief, will be helpful to good people for strengthening faith in teaching and comforting the conscience. For we know that what we have said is in harmony with the prophetic and apostolic scriptures, with the Holy Fathers, Ambrose, Augustine, and very many others, and with Christ's whole church, which certainly confesses that Christ is the atoning sacrifice and justifier. All right, we go back to paragraph 262, and what is it that the Romans understand as faith? merely a knowledge of the history or of dogmas. So there are two types of faith in the Roman theology. First is a knowledge of the history of Jesus and the church. And this is what even the devils have, is they know what happened with Jesus. They know what happened in the history of the church because they were there through it. 
or there is the monks and nuns and the priest and all that who have a history of the dogmas, who can go through and tell you exactly when and where all of these dogmas and all of these new practices came up in the church, even though they really can't tell you exactly where. They know the dogmas. They know the teachings. And this is a divide even in the Missouri Synod, is that we have people who are very heavy on the confessional side, that you must know the confessions, you must have the right message. Against the other side, the other far extreme is those who just want to get the message out, and will straighten everything out later. The problem is that both sides are in the wrong, because the one side says that you must study, and you must stick yourself in your study, and in your Bible, and in your Book of Concord, and all of this, and then eventually, once you master all of this, you can go out and evangelize. The others say, let's evangelize now, and we'll get the message right later. And that has come into no end of problems in the Missouri Synod. I know of a few handful, I know of a handful of instances, especially involving church plants, that have had this issue of being, we go out and we bring people in, and then eventually we'll get around to actually teaching them the doctrine. The problem is you need to be able to teach the doctrine while evangelizing, because that is the point. You can't have one without the other. You can't not have both. And that is where we often seem short-sighted, is that even I have been accused of not being very evangelistic. I've been accused many times of being very evangelical, but not being very evangelistic because I do things like confessional corner, because I am one who likes to have the confessions read and studied in Bible class. There's nothing wrong with that, because this book, this book of Concord right here in my hands as I'm recording, does not encapsulate my faith. It does have it. It is there. I believe the words that are in here. But it is not the end-all, be-all of it. Because you can't just hand somebody who does not know anything about the faith a book of Concord and expect them to understand it. You can't even, many times, unfortunately, hand a book of Concord to a child who has just been confirmed. Because unfortunately, yeah, they made it through the confirmation class, but that's about it. And they're not even really sure how much of that they retain. And that is the sad part of our life in the church. Also in paragraph 266, the knowledge of this faith that holds on to the grace of Christ is necessary. We must have this because it brings the most abundant comfort. It is that grace that faith holds on to, that mercy of Christ, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected for the forgiveness of sins. Not just in the abstract, but my sins. That is what is necessary in this life. Nothing else, nothing else is needed and you get to the bare minimums. But that is the point, isn't it? We need to instill this faith. We need to teach this faith. How do we do that? 
We are in the word. We are in the word with the people we are evangelizing. We're not just throwing out quippy bumper sticker slogans and hoping that they catch on to it because they don't understand our language half the time. So how can they catch on to our bumper sticker slogans? No, no, no. You need to be in the word. You need to be intentional with the people you are evangelizing. Now, we get to the funny part in this whole thing. Paragraph 268. We hope that this discussion, although brief, okay, there is the funniness right there. We are in paragraph 268. If you count just Article 5, we are on page 71. And if you go with many of the options that have 4 and 5 all combined into just one article, we are 100 pages in. And this is brief. Because, yes, we could talk about this forever. We can talk about it till we're blue in the face, but we need to make the point and get on to the next topic. Because we can over-talk things and get to a point where now we don't know what has been said because we have said so much. But this whole entire thing, Article 4 and Article 5, has been designed to be helpful to good people for strengthening faith and teaching and comforting the conscience. Those are the three main things that everything in the confessions goes for. Strengthening faith, teaching, and comforting the conscience. Because without those three things, life as a Christian gets to be very much unchristian and very law-based. Emma Langton finishes off that with saying that we have taught nothing but what the ancient church fathers and Christ's whole church and the scriptures have said. So now we continue on into paragraphs 269 to 277. Nor do we immediately conclude that the Roman church agrees with everything that the pope or cardinals or bishop or some of the theologians or monks approve. For it is clear that most pontiffs consider their own authority of greater concern than Christ's gospel. It has been determined that most of them are openly mere searchers for pleasure. Clearly, theologians have mingled more of philosophy with Christian doctrine than was necessary. Their influence should not appear so great that it will be unlawful to disagree with their arguments, because at the same time, many clear errors are found among them. One of these maintains that from purely natural powers, we are able to love God above all things. This preaching, although it is clearly false, has produced many other errors. For the scriptures, the holy fathers, and the judgments of all the godly everywhere respond. Therefore, popes or some theologians and monks in the church have taught us to seek the forgiveness of sins, grace, and righteousness through our own works, and to invent new forms of worship which have clouded over Christ's office and have made out of Christ not the atoning sacrifice and justifier, but only a legislator. Yet the knowledge of Christ has always remained with some godly persons. Scripture, therefore, has predicted that the righteousness of faith would be clouded over by human traditions and the teaching of works in this way. Paul often complains about this. For instance, see Galatians 4, 9, 5, 7, Colossians 2, 8, and then verses 16 through 19, and 1 Timothy 4, verses 2 through 5, and so on. There were even during his time those who, instead of the righteousness of faith, taught that people were to be reconciled to God and justified by their own works and own acts of worship, and not through faith for Christ's sake. 
People judge by nature that God should be appeased by works. Nor does reason see a righteousness other than the righteousness of the law understood in a civil sense. So there have always been some who have taught this earthly righteousness alone to the exclusion of the righteousness of faith. Such teachers will always exist. The same thing happened among the people of Israel. The majority of the people thought they merited forgiveness of sins by their works. Therefore, they piled up sacrifices and acts of worship. On the contrary, the prophets, in condemnation of this opinion, taught the righteousness of faith. What happened among the people of Israel are illustrations of those things that were to happen in the church. Therefore, let the multitude of the adversaries who condemn our doctrine not disturb godly minds. For the adversary's spirit can easily be judged, because in some articles they have condemned truth that is so clear and apparent that their godlessness appears openly. The bull of Leo X condemned a very necessary article, which all Christians should hold and believe. It stated that we should trust that we have been forgiven not because of our sorrow, but because of Christ's word, whatever you bind, Matthew 16, 19. And now, in this assembly, the authors of the Confutation have clearly condemned the following. A. Faith is a part of repentance. B. We obtain forgiveness of sins by faith. C. And by faith we overcome the terrors of sin, so the conscience is soothed. Who does not see that this article, that by faith we obtain the forgiveness of sins, is most true, most certain, and especially necessary to all Christians? Who to all posterity, hearing that such a doctrine has been condemned, will judge that the authors of it had any knowledge of Christ? Here's a bunch of questions that Melanchthon has for not only the writers of the Confutation, but for Pope Leo X and for you and me as well. If we don't have this faith that this is necessary for us to understand and be comforted, who can judge that the people who teach this have any knowledge of Christ? If Christ is not mentioned, if faith in him is not mentioned, how do we know they even know who Christ is? That is one of the sad things, is that many times there are people who espouse themselves Christians but have really no knowledge of Christ. They just know what they have been taught, whether on TV or through Bible studies or anything else that doesn't have a solid law gospel dynamic to it because they are only given the law because human nature only understands the righteousness of the law we only understand righteousness by works because that is how life works in the world but that is not how life works in the church so we finish up the last two paragraphs of apology five it is possible to make a guess about their spirit based on that inexpressible cruelty, which is agreed they exercised among many good people up to this point. They received news in this gathering about a certain reverend father of the imperial senate. When opinions were stated about our confession, he saw nothing more useful to say to the council than to write back with blood to what we wrote in ink. Could Phalaris say anything more cruel? Some princes have also judged this expression unworthy to be spoken in such a meeting. Even though the adversaries claim the name of the church for themselves, we know that Christ's church is with those who teach Christ's gospel, not with those who defend wicked opinions contrary to the gospel. As the Lord says, my sheep hear my voice, John 10, 27. And Augustine says, the question is, where is the church? What, therefore, are we to do? Are we to seek it in our own words or in the words of its head, our Lord Jesus Christ? I think that we ought to seek it in the words of him who is truth and who knows his own body best. 
In this way, the judgment of our adversaries will not disturb us, since they defend human opinions contrary to the gospel, contrary to the authority of the Holy Fathers who have written in the church, and contrary to the testimonies of godly minds. So far, we end Article 5 of the Augsburg Apology. Now again, we have this point as he goes from Article 5 into Articles 7 and 8, which are combined in the in every copy of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, they are just combined together. But we go from love and our faith into what is the church, where is the church, and that is where Jesus' gospel is taught. It is not where people bring their own opinions in. It is not where people mingle the philosophy of this world and have it take over the place of the gospel. But where the gospel is taught in its truth and purity, where the sacraments are administered according to Christ's command and institution. That is where the church is. And that is where Article 7 of the Apology comes in, which we'll start with next week as we get into September and we get into a brand new article of the Augsburg, of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. And until next time, this is Pastor Dugman standing in the confessional corner, helping you be strengthened in your faith by teaching you what that faith holds on to, and that is the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is where you find the strength to wrestle with theology. Amen.